Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. So today we're going to talk about, well, mostly the present and future of the romance novel, but we'll talk about the past, too. In many respects, what we think of right now as romance fiction or the romance novel probably started in the early 1970s uh, and, and started very specifically, I think, with the work of Kathleen Woodwiss. But it was a very different kind of fiction, a kind of fiction that you almost couldn't publish today, particularly in the sense that her first, in her first novel, I believe the protagonist rapes, the male protagonist rapes the female protagonist about four times as a kind of pathway to eventual romantic love, which is not at all how we see things now. In fact, a measure of how far we've come is that Mary Trump and E. Jean Carroll are collaborating on a romance novel that will be published on Substack. I'm not quite sure how that works, but I mean, obviously, we'll take a considerably dimmer view of rape. Uh, there are a lot of other ways in which the genre is changing, but I don't know them because my name is not Olivia Wade. Olivia Wade is the New York Times Book Review's romance fiction columnist. She writes queer and historical romance, fantasy and critical essays on the genre's history and future. Olivia Wade, welcome to our conversation. Well, hello, Colin. How are you? I'm very, very fine and excited to be talking to you. When we first began discussing this as an idea for an episode, I was the one who brought you up. And I said, oh, you, know, you have to get Olivia Wade because she writes a whole column about this for the New York Times Book Review. And then I was on a Zoom meeting out of my deck and I ran inside and I got the physical New York Times Sunday Book Review and I got your column. And then I read to all the producers one of your summations of one of the books you were covering that week. And I will read part of it to you now or to the listeners, really. Uh, there's plenty of literal sh- literal shoving in a- Anna Zabo's and L.A. Witt's scoreless game, the second in the robust, angsty, queer hockey romance series that began with Rookie Mistake. And I know what all the listeners are thinking. Not another angsty, queer hockey romance series. I mean, hasn't that genre been beaten to death? Um, but no, I was reading that. And I was thinking, okay, this, this is, there's been a lot of changes. <laughs> So we'll start in the present, maybe go back to the past. But we should just say that, that there's a way in which this whole genre has splintered into subgenres that attempt to kind of honor the sensibilities and experiences of a whole bunch of subgroups, right? Well, yes, there's definitely been a huge conversation around that, especially centered on social media, around marginalized creator, BIPOC writers, queer writers more generally. It's been really exciting to be a part of that and to see that getting more attention But you mentioned the 1970s in your intro, and so I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that Avon was actually publishing queer romances in the 1970s. Wow. Vincent Verga's Gaywick comes up a lot, and it's it's two dudes in a historical setting, and they meet, and there's a lot of angst, as you say, and they fall in love, and it ends, I think, fairly happily. And um, this was from that same big pulp paperback era of of the, the 1970s with the big splashy painterly covers. 
So a lot of times when you talk about the history of this, it's less about a straight line of progress and more about a cycle that we have to keep rediscovering and retaking this ground and re-exploring this same idea. That's a really interesting point. And I had not grasped that at all. So we should back up. I mean, if we're going to talk about a romance novel or uh, and maybe talk about romance fiction, somewhat distinct from romance novel, what, what are we talking about? What's the basic taxonomy here? How do we know that something is or isn't uh, a romance novel? Well, Asking what the difference is between romance and romance fiction, between like a romance novel and something with romantic elements, is a bit like asking how much gin do you put in a gin and tonic? Mm -hmm. You know, it's, I can give you, you know, say, okay, about two thirds or whatever. (laughs) That's for the fiction, maybe not for the gin. Um, But, you know, you're going to, if you like it a little stronger, you're going to add more. If you like it a little more subtle, you're going to add less there's not really a hard and fast boundary. And a lot of readers will disagree about whether or not a single book is a romance novel or more of a romantic subplot. It's it's a very complex, constantly debated issue, which is partly why it's so fun. Right. But on the other hand, we can say that, for example, a lot of stores have a specific, specific section called romance or romance novels, and certain novels go there yep. and other novels don't go there. And certainly 70s and 80s, we get Kathleen Woodwiss, we go on to Joanna Lindsay and some of these uh, other just blockbuster writers um, who are clearly working in a genre. And you talk about the, those covers that are paintings that are based on a, a long photo session with actual models, and they have a particular style and look and the title, and there's color coding to tell you how much sex there's going to be. Uh, and so there, there was a thing that at a certain point, we could probably say that's a romance novel. That isn't. And maybe there's a kind of little blurry space in there somewhere. But it sounds like maybe more more blurry space now, more blurring. Yeah, it's I mean, genre is always changing and romance changes quicker than most. So um, the thing I say today might not even be accurate tomorrow. It's which is, again, why it's fun. But yeah, in general, you have what's mostly a couple poly romance is a thing and it's super fun, but it's also comparatively rare. Uh, you have one or more people and they meet at the beginning and they're together at the end and everything else in between is whatever you want. Right. So there's the thing that you're talking about is, I think, in the parlance of the trade, the HEA, happy, happily yeah. ever after, or HFN, happy for now, uh, a little bit more conditional. Uh, and I I would say another thing, and, and I'm not the expert you are, so argue with me, please. But I would say starting th- that if we said that the current shape of the genre start, starts somewhere in the 1970s, well, what are we saying? It seems to me that we're well. That's, we're also, that's really when yeah. publishers started to really heavily market romance as a category. Yeah, although once again, you're the expert, not me. Uh, but I mean, for example, up to that point, one of the most successful authors in the English language was Barbara Cartland, who was yes. definitely writing historical romances. Now, the difference I would say is. There's no real sexy time. Nobody, nobody makes sexy time in Barbara Cartland. In fact, if you read all 730 Barbara Cartland novels uh, as a virgin, you would be no closer to knowing how sex, sexual intercourse took place than you were before you started reading any of them. Whereas with starting in the 70s, there are sex scenes where bodies are in specific positions and stuff like that, right? Yeah, you do have a lot of that. You do have, I mean, Barbara Cartland wasn't the only one to, to dip into euphemism when the moment came to it but um she was also writing in very much like the mills and boone kind of category romance space which is much older and goes all the way back to uh, i mean oh my gosh people write entire books on the history of mills and boone and harlequin alone Mm -hmm. 
so that's a whole we could we could do an hour on that but um the sex is not necessarily always franker in those 70s bodice rippers but it was a lot more like foregrounded i would say Mm -hmm. um I mean, I grew up reading Barbara Cartland and Woodowis as as a hapless virgin myself. So, uh, <laughs> which I don't know. I don't know that one of them necessarily was clearer than the other. Honestly. Um, yeah, by the way, that's my favorite pub in London is the Hapless Virgin. Uh, yeah. It's a, just a wonderful little place to, to hang out. So yeah, I mean, I, I take your point, and yes, I mean, look in Jane Eyre, we know. That Jane and Mr. Rochester are having sex under the sheltering chestnut tree that is, you know, fractured by a lightning bolt. Excuse me, they absolutely are not. No, they're they're groaning and writhing. There. No, 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 no. No, no. Jane, Jane would never. I will not stand for this. <laughs> I will defend Jane Eyre's integrity because. Well, look, I will stand down. Claws, but she's not touching Rochester until they're married. All she right. has more sense than that. I will stand down on that topic. Um, <laughs> all right. So let's talk about now. So, I mean, the world just keeps changing all the time. And, and uh, once again, uh, I, I defer to you on all of this stuff. But it seems to me that now you've got all kinds of blurry spaces. There was what, you know, a couple of decades ago, maybe we called Chicklet. It was Jennifer Weiner and maybe Sex in the City and Bridget Jones and stuff like that. Oh, yeah. And Sophie Kinsella at yeah. the same time. Yeah. But that that's different somehow. Well, maybe we'll start there. That's different. Although if you read like Emily Henry and some of the people really kind of becoming very, very, very popular right now. Mm-hmm. There's kind of a similar sensibility, right? I mean, her characters are, they shop at Trader Joe's and they're into uh, Taylor Swift. I don't know if they take pole dancing classes, but they could, you know. I mean, there's a way in which it's starting to maybe seem a little bit like the old Jennifer Weiner stuff. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, Chicklet and the a lot of the current rom-coms do focus on the experience of young women in the city, in the workforce. Uh, there's, there's, some, there's going to be some commonality there because a lot of the issues – that women are still struggling with in the city and in the workforce are very similar to the ones that we were confronting in the 90s. Uh, Candace Bushnell, all of that classic kind of what is it like to be a young woman in a position in public, like or semi-public, which is partly why Candace Bushnell always writes about writers. Um, what is it like to confront this new world as a woman who is both uniquely poised and uniquely vulnerable to confront all of these changing sexual mores? Yeah, no, I I hear you. Um, by the way, just a fun fact. So I'm sitting here in my Hartford, Connecticut radio studio. Uh, Jennifer Weiner and Candace Bushnell both grew up. I don't know about 20 miles from here. I mean, in different oh, directions. Wow, that's amazing. But different directions. So, yeah, I think Jennifer's from Simsbury and Candace from Glastonbury. But they grew up in Burries. Is the point. Um, all right. So I guess maybe, and I don't really know exactly how to ask you this question, but you read a, a lot of romance novels every year for that for the, for the column that you do. I don't know. I don't know if you keep count of how many you read. Oh God, help me! No, I could never. All right. I try. I try to spreadsheet, and then I get distracted and realize I've skipped four books, and then it's too late. And I don't know. As these things, first of all, uh, is it can it still be fun? I mean, it's a job. Obviously, it's a job you have to do. Is it is is it still? Does it give you the kind of pleasure that it used to? Oh God, yes. The question. I mean, for one thing, the genre is so big. It's really hard to to describe how big it is if you're not experiencing it. Like the big literary books every year. There's like what three, four. There's mm-hmm. about. 25 big romance books coming out at any given time. Mm -hmm. And that's just the ones that I happen to know about. If you start looking into a lot of the different markets, like if you separate out queer romance, if you're looking at romantic suspense or mystery crossovers, sci-fi romance, uh, 
Black romance has its whole own ecosystem that is absolutely wonderful and thriving. There's just, there's so much. You can, ne- one person cannot keep up with it, which on the one hand is overwhelming, but it also means there's always something new and exciting to happen. Um, you do get that sense that, you know, you get sick of ballrooms. You you just start to think, I don't need another Duke in my life at all for any reason. And then somebody writes something truly spectacular and a friend recommends it and you pick it up and you're like, this is why I like the ballrooms in the first place, thankfully. But I could also go for a Zamboni. Um... Yes. No, absolutely. Like you, you Joe, I know, I know you were joking about too many angsty queer hockey romance series, hmm. but there really are quite a lot. <laughs> that makes me very happy, actually. Um, so great. I, I think that's terrific. Yeah. And I think another thing that might be happening. Well, let me just back up and say another thing that the genre has struggled with is a kind of ghettoization and a stigma. Right. There's sort of a sense mm-hmm. among there's a snobbery that has been directed towards it from the jump and there's a way in which it's oh you want the books that are in that section that series of shelves over there possibly towards the back of the store um and 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 i wonder a little bit about some of these writers you know like emily henry or colleen hoover i don't even know if we consider her to be strictly a romance writer but who seem to be not in that section right you can write something that seems to fit the genre but you're on on one of the tables out front where the really you know cool popular books are yeah and it's you know a lot of authors draw the distinction themselves nicholas spark very famously does not consider himself a romance author and we're happy to disown nicholas sparks (laughs) uh colleen hoover sometimes writes romances and sometimes does not and a lot of authors do that Alyssa cole writes romance but she also writes thrillers um how about, I mean, Emily, like, like Emily yeah. writes multiple genres. She had a romance out recently and it was spectacular, but she also writes uh, literary fiction and other types of novels as well. So, yeah. And I mean, I, once again, I'm just going by what little I know about this. But for example, if you look at Beach Read by Emily Henry, um, yeah. the cover of it, it looks, it could be anything. It could be a Sally Rooney novel, which is probably a little bit closer in some people's mm-hmm. minds to literary fiction, but it could also be, I don't know, an Emma Klein novel. It could be a lot of things just looking at the cover of it. And, and I wonder if that's because they don't want bookstores shelving that book someplace that's sort of a romance ghetto. They want it out there uh, to be picked up maybe by somebody who, you know, who wouldn't read something that was classically a romance novel. Well, and I'm certain that the third segment today is going to get more deeply into yeah. like the changes in cover design and ways that ways that the covers designed to appeal to different types of reader. But yeah, there's absolutely a big debate going right now on how well cartoon covers depict or don't depict the contents of a book. Um, Because there are people who are more inclined to pick up a cartoon cover and there are people who are much less inclined to pick up a cartoon cover. Well, yeah. I mean, I guess that's the other part of it, right? There is, I mean, you know, a cover uh, and a genre are uh, in anything are implicitly a covenant between the writer slash publisher and the reader. So the reader sees a certain kind of cover or is in a certain kind of genre and thinks, okay, so I can relax because I, <laughs> I know I know I'm not going to get cheated out some of, out of some of the things that I really like. So the yeah, min- and that yeah. is that is harder to tell these days. Right. Like a lot of those bright, uh, cheerful covers have really, really deep explorations of grief in them or some really like absolutely devastating moments. Um. Because romance, romance gets a lot of safety from that happy ever after. You can do a lot of really dark emotions if you know that it's going to turn out okay. Mm-hmm. 
And And so a lot of romances explore that space where grief or despair or anger or loneliness really live. And they know they know that they can because that HEA is going to pull everybody out of those dark spaces and like back up to the peaks. But with the cartoon covers, you can't always tell. Like, and it's, you know, the clinch covers were not exactly emotionally subtle works of like clear communication all the time. So anyways, it's <laughs> here's some big hair and wind. And we're like, yes, I want the big hair and the wind. Yeah, no, I mean, what I'm wondering about, too, is because we're in this strange area, like, I don't know. I mean, let's give, let's take Sally Rooney as an example. OK, I read Normal People. Um, I, I I first of all feel like reading that book, there is no implicit covenant for an AGA. I have no idea whether these people are going to wind up together or never see each other again or be happy for now. I mean, to me, that's a somewhat romantic book in a very, very, very modern way. But it's certainly mm-hmm. I don't feel you know reassured. I don't feel like, OK, I know, you know they'll be together at the end. Well, yeah, but that's that's because there's a lot of books out there where they're built like a fuse. And so you have that spark <laughs> to start and then you follow where it goes and then boom, you find out. And a romance novel is much more like a violin string where you have to have it fixed at both end and the music happens in the middle. So let me t- have you take off your um, your hat as the uh, columnist for the New York Times book review and put on your hat. You can leave your hat on. Uh, no, put on your hat as a, as a novelist uh, uh, on something like uh, your novel, The Lady's Guide to Celestial Mechanics. I'll read a little mm-hmm. passage. We thought we were separate satellites, but we aren't. We're stars. And though we might burn separately, we'll always be in one another's orbit. So... I don't know, when you write, when you write in a genre, when you write in this genre, are you thinking a lot about the tropes and conventions of the genre or are you just writing? And then, I don't know, how how does it wind up fitting into whatever it might need to fit into? Well, I tend to be a planner as far as writers go. I love writing synopses, I lo- which is weird, I know. Um, <laughs> I love... I love the structure. I, my training is all in literary structure and comparative literature. So I really love plot elements. I love building blocks. I love getting really granular. So tropes, everything from like the sentence level to the like big narrative plot level, all that makes me really happy. I like to combine things and remix things and grab all these pieces and see how they add up. And so for me, structure is in there from the beginning. So what I try to do is I try to build myself a skeleton. And then when I get in, I can flesh it out with things like images and emotions and uh, character moments. And there's always something that surprises me in the writing. But I have to solve like the big plot problems in advance or else I end up writing myself into a corner and then the book is dead. It's just deeply unpleasant. I don't want to do it. So I tend to do like a synopsis instead of a first draft. But for me, all those layers are kind of firing at once. So the thing about what word to choose here is very related to what kind of trope am I trying to invoke and what am I trying to indicate that I'm not invoking? Because there's a lot of times where you want to avoid tropes, even if it's just like, I don't want that trope active in this scene. So you do something to indicate that you're not thinking along those lines. And it's, it is complicated. And this is one reason why romance is so complicated, especially for beginning readers, they pick it up and they're like, is that it really? And for one thing, A lot of it is because the prose tends to be very direct, but also because the structure of romance is so complicated and it feeds into all the romance you've read before and it feeds into other experiences that you may have had. So romance readers will joke about things like only one bed 
And that doesn't make any sense as a phrase to anybody outside of the genre. Why would there be only one bed? And it's this whole set of contexts and conventions and patterns from multiple books and multiple pieces of writing that immediately activate whenever like two characters show up in an inn and like longtime romance readers will sit up and kind of start to salivate and go, is it an only one bed situation? <laughs> oh, I get it now. Okay. So, um, so just to, as we're kind of wrapping up here, one thing that we haven't said is to the extent that these things can be identified as a genre and that the blurry lines can be straightened out and clarified, what, it, what we're left with is a genre that seems to be booming, right? This is a 1.44 billion in yearly revenue uh, book industry by at least one accounting. Can you talk a little bit about that? And I, I gather that the popularity is growing rather than shrinking, no matter how you slice up the loaf of bread. Well, yeah, I think uh, there have been a few hits, like big cultural hits in recent years that have kind of brought a whole new readership to the genre. Which is really exciting. We need we need those infusions of lifeblood every so often, um, and it's been things like Bridgerton or Red, White, and Royal Blue, or all of the YA romance that was very popular a few years back. All those readers are now aging up into adult fiction, and they're looking for things like that. So you're getting a lot of YA inflected and new adult romances, and self publishing is more viable than before. It just feels like we are in a bit of a golden age. And a lot of people are doing really novel and exciting things with the genre. And some of them are playing on all the old tropes that people like me grew up with. And others are striking out and doing innovative and strange things that come from other traditions. Uh, there was a recent novel, and I think this was in the most recent column. Uh, and it just came out, but it was published serially over email. And it's called The Scandalous Letters of V and J. And it's a historical romance about two protagonists with a very mutable and flexible approach to gender and they're exploring it. And it's also a little bit magical, but it's this very groundbreaking, uh, extremely queer, wonderful, fluid, beautifully written romance. The, uh, the author, they sent it out as a series of emails over several months for free. And then the book was released. So you were getting this in snippets in your inbox every morning. And it was really titillating and voyeuristic and it's very sexy and gorgeous. Mm. And I don't know, it was, serial novels are not exactly new, but getting that little snippet in email and then having the book come out and having it say all of these wonderful liberatory things about gender and the physical form and relationships between bodies and minds and hearts. Mm. It was so exciting. And it wasn't like any reading experience I've ever had before. And Oof. things like that are just happening all the time in every corner. Somebody's trying something new. People are making romance novel games. People are making um, podcasts and short fiction and really trying to like stretch the boundaries of the genre. And isn't there something else that lends with like talk? Let's see, book book talk. Um, I mean, obviously, book, book talk has played <laughs> yes. an incredible role here in like hashtag coho, which is you, yeah. know, you know how you find the Colleen Hoover stuff. Where we have to go, unfortunately, because we have another guest coming. But people kind of even sort of are almost reading performatively, putting a book down and crying. You know, I gotta assume that's gotta stampede people to certain books if the TikTok takes off. Yes. And man, TikTok algorithms, again, could be their own whole show. And 
I tend to steer clear of video mostly, so I am not on the, uh, what is it, the clock app, they call it. <laughs> yeah, and that's how you actually accomplish something in life, by not being on there. You've accomplished a lot right now. Olivia Wait, the New York Times book reviews romance fiction columnist. She also writes queer and historical romance, fantasy, and critical essays on the genres, history, and future. My glasses are all steamed up from the way she described that last book. That's why I couldn't read her bio. We'll be back. We'll talk to one of the guys who likes romance novels. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. All right, so now we're going to talk about a group of people who are, in fact, growing in numbers in these days. Those are men who read romance novels, and we're going to do that talking with Jason Rogers, an Olympic medalist, a journalist covering masculinity, and the founder of a now-defunct romance book club for men. Jason Rogers, welcome to our conversation. Hey, thanks for having me. So this, uh, the book club itself started during the pandemic, like a lot of things did. Say a little bit more about uh, how you got a bunch of guys together uh, to read a certain kind of book. Yeah, well, you know, I should start off by saying, you know, I was curious about the genre for a couple of reasons. One is that, you know, in, in my kind of past life and my, my athletic life, sex and intimacy was never something that felt really natural to me. Um, but also I was just curious, like I learned the genre was, was huge and I had no sense for that at all. Um, and I picked up this book called the Bromance Book Club, um, which was focused on a group of professional athletes. And it sort of just immediately grabbed me. I felt like I kind of identified with the characters and I was like, Hey, why don't I try and recreate this in, in real life? Right. So the book itself is kind of running its thumb down the knife's edge of what you're talking about, right? It's mm-hmm. it's the, the Bromance Book Club talks about the fact that romance novels are primarily written uh, by women for women. They're about how women want to be treated. Uh, and, and so what kind of book and what kind of experience are you or were you and your group going for? What kind of book were you picking out and what were you looking for? Well, I was looking for something that was kind of 
um, straight down the fairway in the sense that it would provide like an introduction to these guys who, you know, in most of whom, and there was one exception had read absolutely no romance at all. So it would be kind of like a soft, uh, a soft opening for them. And, but also that would have some kind of masculine elements that they might be able to relate to. And I think that's where the professional sports angle came in. You know, it kind of had a bit of a broiness to it in the dialogue. Um, but at the end of the day, what I was hoping was that, you know, the, the discussions that we were having about the book and the discussions that were being had within the book would be kind of like a gateway drug for us to start talking about our own relationships and our own problems and our own kind of struggles with sex and intimacy. And was it? It was. I mean, it, to be honest with you, the the beginning of the first meeting was a little stilted in, in some cases. I think it was tough for guys to kind of adjust one to, to, to reading a book that, you know, is female coded. You know, you mentioned most, most are, are written by, by women. They're kind of for women. Although, you know, the cohort of, of readers that are men is growing. Um, but, you know, at, at, they kind of found a certain sense of ease after about 20 or 30 minutes. And, you know, the ice kind of broke and, and we, and we got into it. And by the end, I, you know, it was, it was really quite a, a bonding experience. And I think that's why we, we kept going for some time. You know, listening to you talk and knowing what I know about your club um, and talking to you after the series finale of Ted Lasso, I'm thinking about those guys who, you know, they 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 know a lot about rom-coms. I don't know, they don't talk about romance novels so much, but, you know, in the Amsterdam episode, they, rather than go out in the town, the whole team stays in the hotel and rents You've Got Mail and then has a big debate about that versus Sleepless in Seattle. And they know, you know who the three Kates are, Hudson, uh, Winslet, and Beckinsale. And there's this idea. Here are these big, tough, you know, Premier League soccer players, football players, uh, and and they, you know, sit there and cry. <laughs> and I mean, obviously, this is all part of a men's movement that's been around for 10, 20, 30 years. But I think something about having pro athletes do it, and, and you're sort of saying the, the sports part of it somehow or other took the curse off maybe some of the emotions guys might not be that comfortable with. Yeah. I mean, I, well, first of all, let me just comment on Ted Lasso because I totally agree. And I think the the book club in a way functioned in the capacity of the the diamond dogs, you know, um, <laughs> you know, which is essentially <laughs> the, you know, the, yeah, exactly. Sorry, <laughs> I am re- re- legally like, required to do that. Anyway, continue. Yes, I, I appreciate it. And you did it well. Um, so, you know, essentially it becomes this council on relationships and, you know, one of us kind of steps up and says, Hey, I'm, I'm really struggling with, with this thing. And then, you know, the, the, the five, six other guys kind of come in and say like, okay, well, here's, here's how I think about it. Like, have you thought about communicating better and so on and so forth. And, you know, to some degree, we, we try and avoid solutionizing problems and, and just listen, but in the end it does, it does perform in a kind of advisory way. But to your point, like, I, I totally agree. I mean, I think when it comes to masculinity as a broader construct, like the reality is that society at large, men in particular, look to certain kinds of role models who they consider archetypally masculine. And professional athletes are one of them. Certain kinds of, you know, A-list actors are others. And so when those groups, you know, or individuals perform in ways that are kind of against trend or against stereotype, it, it makes it makes men sit up and think. And um, I think in, in a way, that's kind of what the Bromance Book Club is, is doing for the men uh, that, that sit and read it. 
Um, without well, I, one thing. Okay, let's let's do a sort of a male stereotype thing. I think it's the male stereotype that men they like sex, they want to know about sex, they want to watch porn uh, so they can see sex, um, and and so in that sense. Sex that is kind of dressed up in sort of more romantic clothing might seem like a non-starter for certain guys. But on the other hand, I've just been talking to Olivia Wade about how much sex there is in these books. Can you talk a little bit about how your group of male romance readers reacted to the the elements of sex in the books they read? Yeah, sure. I mean, well, for one, um, you know, I, there there were some that were saying that the book that we read first was not spicy enough. You know, we we want more sex, and you know, we went on to read another book after that that had much more. It was a lot higher on the spice level. Um, and but I mean, I think the other reaction in general was that the way that the sex was described um, didn't necessarily resonate with guys, whether it be you know, the use of either flowery euphemistic language or the use of overly descriptive language um, that maybe just, you know, didn't strike the right tone um, for guys. But I think, you know, in the end, like where I land with this and and where I think to a certain degree, some of the guys in the book club land land with this is that, um, you know, it's not about like necessarily changing guys' preferences around what they're aroused by it's more about helping them understand from a different perspective from the female perspective what sex and intimacy look like and i think what happens in romance novels that's really well spelled out is that yes there are climactic sex scenes um, and they're they can be very very hot and very very spicy but really the the climax of the book tends to be when there's a, a great moment of emotional vulnerability you know when that quote unquote alpha male protagonist kind of cracks open and, you know, lets down his guard. And I think that's where men have something to learn from the genre. Jason Rogers, we've got just about a minute left here. Um, What would you recommend in terms of, well, I mean, obviously there's the one that we've already talked about, but for a man who's listening right now, there's the Bromance Book Club by Lissa K. Adams that you guys, is there another novel that you would recommend as kind of an on-ramp here for this stuff? Well, I mean, I, so I should say that the Bromance book club is is actually now a series yeah. there's i think five of them and i think lissa k adams is does a really good job kind of threading the needle between you know writing stories with romantic elements that have the you know happy happily ever after or happy for now but also kind of um i don't want to use the word masculinizing but making something that that really can kind of appeal to both to both groups um, you know, Olivia mentioned a book that that I really liked, um, Red, White, and Royal Blue by Casey McQuiston. Um, and I think she mentioned it in the context of it being kind of a, a bit of a cross-genre book. And interestingly, it is a, a gay romance. It's about, you know, sort of relationship between, um, you know, the, the, the Prince of Wales and the son of the American president. But it's got these, like, really fun kind of political elements to it. And I just found it to be a really fun read. So, um, I always point guys in, in direction of that one, even though that that may be a tricky one to pick up for guys that are like, ooh, I don't know about that. But um, yeah, I, there's there's so much out there. Well, if it's, and, look, if it's William and Hunter Biden, I'm there. I, I'm there <laughs> for that book. Uh, I totally want to read it. Hey, hey, listen, it's been so much fun talking to you. And, and thank you so much for sharing your story about how you guys got into these books. Jason Rogers is an Olympic, Olympic medalist and journalist covering masculinity and the founder of a now-defunct romance book club for men. And there is, in fact, a book, a book about such things called the Romance Book Club. Thank you. And we'll be back to talk about covers. 
You can follow The Colin McEnroe Show on Facebook or Twitter at Colin McShow. Make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing to or following our podcast on any podcast app. It's free. You don't have to wait an hour after eating before you go swimming. That's just something our mothers believe. Back to the show. Okay, a lot of people to thank uh, today, uh, starting with our two technical producers that I know of. Uh, Jonathan McPants is stepping in as technical producer for this uh, segment you're about to hear. I'm assuming the other segments, which will take place in the future from where I am now, it's very complicated, will be technically produced by Cat Pastor. But who knows? It could be anybody. The producer of this episode is uh, Jennifer LaRue, uh, and Lily Tyson is our senior producer. And if I've left anybody out, uh, I'm really sorry, but... (laughs) At least that many people were involved in the show. So a big part of this whole world and of this whole genre, and in many respects, perhaps the only part of the world, of this world that uneducated, clueless people like me know anything about or think we know anything about, is the cover. So joining us now is somebody who knows from covers. Tony Horvath uh, is the creative director for the longtime romance novel publisher Harlequin, where he oversees production of about 80 book covers a month. <laughs> I can't even wrap my mind around that, Tony. Yeah, it's it's a lot of uh, it's a lot of covers. It's a lot of books, and we're very consistent on that. So, um, yeah, we're just we're actually we love our jobs. We're thrilled to be able to work on them. It's uh, it's actually a privilege. So, let me, in my not at all affected uh, version of a clueless, uneducated guy, share with you my <laughs> out of date version of what a romance novel cover is. I think for a lot of people, it's the clinch, right? Uh, it's the large guy sort of slightly holding and maybe bending back a little bit, a slightly disheveled clothing, not entirely aligned properly, attractive, long haired woman. I, you know, grew up walking past books like that uh, and probably not buying them. I'm assuming that's a pretty radically outdated idea of not just Harlequin, but but anybody's romance novel. Yeah, I, you know, I've been at Harlequin now for 18 years, and that was quite a bit before my time. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
when I started, they had already, you know, uh, moved far away from that years earlier. You know, a lot of our books are uh, genre based. So, you know, we have detective books and uh, like suspense books. At one point we had like paranormal romance. So I, I think the idea of the clinch has moved or evolved since then. I think we look at it now more like it's just, it's like a, a realistic embrace. But as for this whole deep dip, clothes flying off, we don't really do that anymore. I think, we, I think we've evolved. So the other part about these covers, one of the many other parts about these covers, but I think worth noting is these covers are not created to attract my attention. They are created to attract the attention of someone who's interested in the genre. It's probably, Mm. if they are physically in a bookstore, they are in the section of the bookstore where these books are available. And so the conversation that your covers are having with them are specific to that. And so what kinds of information is the cover trying to communicate in the conversation it's having? You've already indicated, well, you might be telling them, okay, this one's cowboys, this one's detectives. Uh, But there must be other stuff that's sort of encoded there. Yeah, I mean, at the heart of every book, there is a romance, whether it is at the beginning and, and, and it evolves throughout, or if it's one of those stories that it starts off as one thing, but it ends up, you know, invariably as a romance. That is that is what we do. But there are stories in there. You know, every every book has characters, every book has a genre that it's sort of based in, but it really is about the story. And I think that when we look at the covers, that's part of what we try to, you know, really sort of dig into and and show the reader that in one second that image represents what the reader's gonna get when they buy that book and read it. So we should also talk a little bit, little bit about the physical presentations, uh, or the artistic presentations in these covers. So back in the day, uh, as I yep. understand it, there would be, first of all, a pretty lengthy photo shoot, an art-directed photo shoot that involved models, you know, and being talked through a whole series of poses and, and emotions and attitudes and the way a photo shoot is. And then quite frequently, a painter would take over. A painter would take those photos and working with somebody like you, uh, some painter, there are famous ones like Max Ginsburg, who would then paint what was going to be the cover. That sounds like a process <laughs> that in today's world might be a little bit too labor intensive and not necessarily cost effective. I'm assuming those glory days are kind of over. Yeah, I, the, they ended quite some time ago. I mean, we have a lot of old archived artwork that I still marvel at. And it was done like that. It was done, you know, they would hire models that would come in, they would take their photographs, but then it would go off to an illustrator or a painter who would paint whatever they wanted on top of it. So it was like clothing, uh, backgrounds. We do a lot of that stuff digitally now. Uh, Well, actually all of it digitally. We still hire models, but it's more about working towards the final piece and getting as much of that in camera as possible. So, you know, there's a process that we go through for every cover. We, you know, brief, and then there's a concepting stage, then we are hiring, and then we're going to the shoot. So there is a giant process that we go through for series and for the number of books that are in each series per month. So you've overseen production. Well, if you're doing 80 covers a month, um, Mm. you've done probably a couple thousand covers in your career. So, you know, I mean, in any romantic relationship, there's the need to keep things spicy, make things different. Let's try a little something different uh, tonight. So you've got a 
do that 2,000 times? I mean, how how can you, it must be kind of a stretch to figure out something new to do, something you haven't done before. Well, I, I do, it's not, you know, obviously it's not just me. I oversee a team and, and everybody is working on, you know, a portion of those books uh, per month. Um, and so everyone sort of brings their own sort of flair to it. We hire models uh, and they all come with their own, you know, talents. Uh, we hire photographers hair and makeup, wardrobe. So it's it really is like a, it's a team effort to create those covers. It's not like done by one, one sort of vision. It's, it's, it's a collaboration of, of everybody, everybody bringing something to the table. And then, and then you've got, you know, two hours per cover to, to make that cover into something, you know, individual for that book. And then we, you know, there's a lot of retouching that's done to it, because obviously, we can't, go on location for, you know, 80 books a month. So, you know, we do a lot of it in studio and we are using stock backgrounds and and we're, we know what we're going into a shoot with. And so we're sort of matching the lighting and, and all of that. I was looking at some pretty recent Harlequin covers yeah. and it looked like, I mean, I think there's sort of another interesting question here too, which is that people, generationally, people may have an idea of what these novels are, you know, and, and that idea to a person who's maybe... 17, 18, 19, or into their 20s is, oh, yeah, my mom, you read those kinds of novels. And I don't read those kinds of novels. I read something else. And those covers of the past, the ones we were talking about, they had a very specific look. Uh, these look different to me. They look much more photographic, to your point. Uh, yeah, and I'm wondering, I'm wondering yeah. if part of that is the message to, oh, yeah, yeah, you're 22 years old. This actually is for you. This is not for your mother. This is much more of a book that you would read. Yeah. And to that, we, you know, we have, we have a lot of authors who write for us and some of the authors have written for us for, you know, years. Other ones, we have new authors every month that are being signed up and, and they all come with their own, their own interests and their own way of writing. And so when we brief these books, we try to understand as much as we can in that briefing as to what the author, what they, what their interests are, what their book's about, what their writing style is. And, and we sort of try to take the essence of that and take the story and the characters that that author has created and then turn that into something that is like visually in line with, with what the author's vision is. So they, the authors give us all sorts of like great ideas and synopsis and scenes that we, we draw on, the art directors draw on to create those images. So, and I understand as these photo shoots happen, despite the best laid plans and the careful meticulous forethought that is given to them, you know, there's always kind of an X factor, something that goes wrong. Like, did you have somebody who was like allergic to hay or something? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so it took me a couple of times to figure that out. But uh, <laughs> yeah, we, we one of our models came in and, and then after, um, you know, he called me and said, hey, uh, I broke out in a rash and I think I might be allergic to hay. And I was like, oh, that's terrible. And then and then about a year later, I hired him again and did the exact same thing. And then we were both 100% confirmed that he's allergic to hay. So then you start to remember, it's like, oh, can't hire him for this <laughs> unless he's wearing a shirt. So it's, yeah, it's it's interesting. You start to know the people and you know, you start to know personal things about them. And it, it you build relationships with the with the models and, and the photographers. And it's, yeah, it's like I say, it, it takes a village. Yes. So there seems to be like a thing going on with bathtubs, right? I mean, I'm not saying it's, you know, on all Harlequin covers, but bathtubs are like kind of sexy these days. 
Yeah, we we've shot a lot of we shot a lot of bathtub shots or or shower shots for um you know one of our sexier lines um that we had you know years ago we, we no longer have that line we've 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 moved on to other ones but um yeah we've we've done all put it this way if if, if you can think of the scene we have probably shot it to create a cover for for one of our authors so there's nothing really that I think we can't do i think that technology has gotten to a point where and and we all obviously have very talented people who work with us but i think that there isn't anything that we we wouldn't attempt you know we shoot people in cars we shoot people riding horses um you name it we shoot it you know one of the things that i learned getting ready for this is that uh and this is probably another thing that's either dead or dying but that for a long time there were certain kind of visual signals that a cover might send Sometimes even just in the colors used, if the dominant color was kind of a purpley blue, that was an indication to the learned, educated reader uh, about like how much sex and passion there might be in there. Is is that kind of stuff still going on? Are there still messages that if you know, you know? A, a little bit, yeah. I, I, it's more. It's, I think it's more about like telling the story and trying to tell that story like more accurately. Like if you know, when I think about suspense. A lot of our covers are, you know, they're dark and they're moody, but but it's hard to tell suspense at 12 o'clock in the afternoon on a sunny day. So you, you want to build atmosphere. You know, we have covers that are, uh, you know, they're billionaires that are on yachts in the Mediterranean. So you really want to try to showcase that. But I think it's more about, it's more about representing the locations and the timing of day and 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 the mood of what the book is. So I, I think, you know, red being sexy. Yeah, everyone kind of feels that everyone knows that if you put red on a cover, it'll, it'll be very, very sexy. But I think that's a kind of a cliche that we've sort of moved away from quite some time ago. Right. It's 2023 uh, and things are changing. Uh, that has been one of the big messages of the entire episode today. Tony Horvath is the creative director for the longtime romance novel publisher Harlequin, where he oversees production of about 80 book covers a month. Thanks so much for being with me today. Oh, thank you very much for having me. And thanks to everyone who listened to today. Go out and buy yourself a romance novel, even you unromantic people. It's the thing to do right now. Thanks for listening. We'll be back tomorrow. By looking at the cover, oh, can't you see? Oh, can't you see? Ain't like a farmer, I'm a lover. Can't judge a book by looking at the cover.